Good morning and happy Easter Sunday to everybody. We're actually going up to verse 8, so it'd be great if you have your Bibles open to have a look at that. What a privilege it is to gather this Easter Sunday around our risen Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let's pray as we come to his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather this morning rejoicing in our risen Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, that we are reminded uh, in song, in prayer, and in your word uh, that in him uh, we have hope of new life, of sins forgiven, of death defeated, and life won with you. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, remind us afresh of these great truths and remind us to respond accordingly to you this Easter Sunday. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in December 1967, uh, Prime Minister of Australia at the time, Harold Holt, uh, he spent the weekend in his holiday house in Portsea in Victoria. He decided to have a stop during his, uh, his uh, road trip and have a swim at the beach before lunch. Uh, the conditions at the beach were rough, and he seemed to have been caught in a rip in his swim. Harold Holt, the Prime Minister, he disappeared from view, and after 21 days of searching, his body was never found. It's generally accepted that Harold Holt, he drowned and died in the sea, overestimating his swimming ability in the rip. But if you've read, uh, there are other theories too about Harold Holt's death, that he committed suicide, that he faked his own death, that he was apparently assassinated by the CIA, or that he was collected by a submarine and defected to China. A significant moment in Australian political history, and some would say it's a mystery, a scandal, because of a missing body. Well, this morning on Easter Sunday, we come to the greatest scandal of a missing body, the missing body of the crucified Jesus, and how the world, and especially how those who call themselves Christians, view this scandal. You see, historians and scholars, they all agree that a person named Jesus lived he was born in Nazareth in Israel in the backwaters of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, that this Jesus, he died under the rule of Pontius Pilate, crucified on a cross, a choice execution method within the Roman Empire. Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian in the first century who defected to Rome, uh, whose writings are widely accepted by historians, he writes this, and it should be on the screen. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, condemned him to the cross, you see, historians agree and accept uh, these as truths, facts, that Jesus lived, that Jesus died. But as we come to Mark 16 this morning, 
We don't read about the end of the Jesus movement or the funeral of Jesus. We see a scandal, a scandal of the resurrection. It's a scandal. Mark, he presents the evidence of what happens on this Sunday morning after Jesus was crucified the Friday before. And Mark, he shows us God's take on this scandal. And in somewhat an anticlimactic ending, Mark, the author here, he leaves it to the reader. He leaves it to you, putting the onus on you and me on how we will respond to the scandalous ending of this gospel, of this account of Jesus. So this morning, today, we're going to dive into Mark's account of Resurrection Sunday. We're going to see how the events of Jesus rising again speaks to you, me, and us today on this Easter Resurrection Sunday. And the first thing we come across is the account, facts, details of how this Sunday began. Women visiting the tomb, visiting a dead Jesus. And in our postmodern world today, where it's said that truth is subjective, relative, and my truth, my reality is different to yours, Mark, he wants us to taste and see. He wants to deal with the evidence. He wants us to deal with the objective details of the events surrounding the first Easter Sunday, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. We see here what these women were doing right after the Sabbath day was over, 6 p.m. about on that Saturday night, sundown on Saturday. They head down to their local grocery store, their local Coles or Aldi to buy spices, oils, and all of these preparing to anoint the body of Jesus to cover the stench of decay and to pay respect and honour to the dead body of Jesus. You see, you'd only prepare these things if Jesus was really, actually, truly dead. Verse 2. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now, it's the next day. It's Sunday morning. It's about 6 a.m., just after sunrise. And these women went out to the tomb. And they were probably so caught up in emotion that they forgot to think about how to move the stone. And that's because on the Friday when Jesus died, his dead body was put in a tomb, remember? Dead bodies go in tombs. And the stone, it's a large stone in verse 4, probably weighing about four tons, three hatchbacks in weight, and it was set into the hillside. It was sealed shut on that Friday night with a guard of soldiers watching the tomb. You see, these women that we find in Mark 16, they were visiting a dead Jesus. He died, he was put in the tomb, and the tomb was sealed shut. So far, everything's going as planned this Sunday morning. They visited the shops the night before. They got all the spices they needed. They woke up on time, and they set out to the tomb. 
But as they arrive, as they wonder how they're going to get into the tomb, the day starts to unravel. A dramatic discovery, the scandal, the mystery begins. Words, details, evidences, and accounts that would change the world. Verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. The stone had already been moved. The tomb was open for all to see. The tomb being open, inviting the women in. Come and see. Look what had happened. And the women do this in verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man standing on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. I reckon these women, they rush into the tomb, and they're expecting to see the body of Jesus. But instead, they're greeted with this guy in white, and it's pretty clear by what he's wearing, what he says, and what the other gospel accounts say, and how the women respond, that this young man, he's an angel of God. He's speaking words of God to the women. And the angel gives three bits of information, two truths and one conclusion or one divine revelation. First truth, Jesus was crucified. He really did die. Second truth, see the place where they laid him. Jesus, the body's gone. The tomb's empty. He's not there. And third, the conclusion, God's divine revelation. He has risen. He's alive. Death could not hold him down. And his mission, Jesus, to die as a ransom for many, to die for the sins of the world, to die to make God's people righteous. It's complete. As death is defeated in Jesus rising from death into new life. You see, these two truths, Jesus was crucified and the tomb is empty. It's a scandal. How do we explain these two truths? What does it mean? It's a scandal that's lasted 2,000 years. And many, over time, have tried to answer this scandal. There's a few popular theories, either for curiosity or for real consideration. One is the swoon theory. Jesus, he didn't really die. He fainted from the suffering and later regained consciousness, but we're forgetting there's a four-ton stone and questioning one of the most clinical execution methods in history. Then there's theories relating to seeing visions of Jesus. Jesus died and all the resurrection accounts, they're all visionary appearances, hallucinations. But somehow all of these visions parallel each other and you think if they were visions only, the claims of disciples and his witnesses would have easily been rejected in the first century and onwards. And third, there's a legend theory. 
that over time, stories about Jesus were embellished, including and adding this resurrection account. Again, if this legend theory were the case, the claims of the church would have been rejected and they would have never taken off. Other conspiracy theories, like the guards were bribed and the body was stolen, or the disciples decided to lie for profit, or that Jesus had a twin brother. If these were true, it would have been the greatest hoax and lie in all of history that even the disciples died themselves for, a lie that realistically, if you really think about it, would have been found, rejected, and disproved. There's even a wrong tomb theory that the women simply went to the wrong tomb, that they found it empty and made the wrong conclusion that Jesus had risen. But that doesn't explain the resurrection appearances and the fact that just finding the right tomb would have disproved all of these claims. You see, two truths. Jesus was crucified and the tomb is empty. Well, God gives us his take of this scandal, and it's simple, yet world-changing, just as Ken has mentioned. Jesus has risen. He died, he was crucified, he was buried in a tomb, and now he's alive. Well, we come to now the final verses of Mark, the verses that Tim left out, and I wonder if you remember a movie that ended abruptly. A movie that was an anticlimax, a cliffhanger, or ended on a puzzling note. Some that come to mind for me are the end of the Hunger Games trilogy, or the Matrix trilogy, or Avengers Infinity Wars, where it's part one of the two-part series. Endings where you kind of went, that didn't really make sense, or you had to figure it out for yourself. Well, the Gospel of Mark has this sort of ending. Mark, if you read through this Gospel, it's an action-packed book. It's kind of like a movie or series, scene after scene after scene, focusing on Jesus and the mystery and awe surrounding his ministry and his person. But Mark, it ends on this anticlimactic note in verse 7 and 8. It ends in such a weird note that scribes in the second century, they did the opposite of what Tim did and added more verses to make it better. Verses that aren't found in any of the early manuscripts. And if you have a Bible, it's verse 9 to 20 in brackets and italics. But if we assume that verse 8 is the real original ending to Mark's gospel, which is what all almost all scholars agree on. I think it's a fitting ending to a book of action, of mystery, and awe surrounding this Jesus to end with a bit of mystery and awe and to make the reader figure it out, to force the reader, to force us to think, how will I respond to this? How and what do I make of these events in Mark 16, where we pick up in verse 7, the end of the angel speaking. But go, 
tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they, had not, they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You see, the angel continues on and tells the women, go and tell, go and tell the others, Jesus, he's alive. He'll be at Galilee just as he told you before. In Mark 14, 28, he says, but after I am raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. It's just as Jesus predicted. He'll die, he'll rise into new life, even though no one connected the dots. But we see at the end here, these women, they run off. They're scared and amazed and afraid and terrified, and they said nothing to no one. And we're left at the end of this gospel, this account, this eyewitness testimony with these questions. What happened? Did these women, did they get over their fear? Did they announce the resurrection? Did they see Jesus alive after this? Did Peter and the other disciples see Jesus alive? How did all of them respond? But I think these first readers, uh, they were Christians in the mid-60s AD. They were suffering as persecution under Nero grew. They knew how this story ended. These women, they did overcome their fear. They did announce the resurrection. They did see Jesus alive. They witnessed this truth over the course of 30 or so years, move from Jerusalem to Rome and beyond. So this puzzling ending, it actually throws the spotlight onto the reader. The truths are laid out. The scandalous claim is made. The call to go and tell is given. The motions confronting the empty tomb are laid bare, trembling, fear, and amazement. And it's asking the reader, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are suffering as they follow Jesus, asking them, how will you respond to the empty tomb? And God asks this question to you and me today, believers or visitors this morning, how will you today respond to the empty tomb? You see, on this Easter Sunday, it's not just another public holiday. It's not just that time of the year to ritually come to church. It's not just that time to put up with a Jesus has risen sermon and songs. It's especially a time to focus on the good news of God, that Jesus is indeed alive, that he died, taking on your sin, my sin, the sins of the world, our rebellion against the creator God, that he died, he was buried in a tomb, and that he rose from the dead, rising into new life, defeating death once for all, paving the way for real hope, eternal life as one trusts in Jesus. And to focus on this good news 
the saving message that we respond to God in light of his scandalous claim that Jesus has risen. The Apostle Paul says of the resurrection, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, the resurrection of Jesus, it's central to the good news of salvation. You see, Jesus died and that's it. We might as well pack our bags and go home. But if Jesus did rise again, well, everything changes. There's assurance of new life, of life without death, of a right relationship with God, of a glorious future in Jesus. It's a good news that you don't want to miss out on. The Apostle Paul keeps going in 1 Corinthians 15 about what this change looks like. Behold, I will tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, all of this in Christ, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You see, this is the future This is the future that's made possible, that's made available because Jesus has risen. Immortality, imperishable, death defeated and life forevermore. And Mark 16 ends asking us the question, how will you respond? God, he's laid out the events surrounding this Resurrection Sunday and he puts it to you. How will you respond? Firstly, how will you respond to the empty tomb? I don't know if you're Easter egg people, but every big Easter egg you open, it reminds you of this question because you open it, you bite into it, and it's empty. Well, on that first Easter Sunday, the tomb was empty. Jesus' body was put in, it was sealed, and now it's empty. How do you respond to that? Is it some other theory like the swoon theory, the organized lie theory, the legend theory, the wrong tomb theory? Because God scandalously claims that Jesus has risen into new life. 
And the New Testament gives countless witnesses to this. Witnesses and accounts that have lasted the test of time. Even the Jewish non-Christian historian Josephus, he says, he appeared to them alive again on the third day as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. How do you, how do we respond to the empty tomb? And if you're a visitor, if you haven't accepted Jesus yet, or even if you call yourself a Christian today, how will you respond to the empty tomb? And secondly, how do you respond to the risen Jesus? Remember the first readers, they were believers, but they still needed reminding, refreshing, refocusing on the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And they didn't need reminding just on Easter Sunday, but day by day as they lived for Jesus to respond in amazement and astonishment, but unlike the women in verse 8, to respond in faith, trust, belief in Jesus, to hold on to Jesus even amidst all the suffering or other things that were going on, to boldly go and tell others of the good news of Jesus, knowing that in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, everything changes, everything changes. Immortality, imperishable, death is defeated and we have eternal life. That's life with God forever. Brothers and sisters, fellow believers, as we cast our eyes, especially on the risen Lord Jesus today, respond in faith, trusting in Jesus afresh. Respond with a tighter grip and hold of Jesus. Respond with a renewed resolve, like this woman, to go and tell. And respond with assurance, that certain hope that eternal life is one and secure in our risen Lord and Saviour. So as we finish off this Easter Sunday, how will you respond to the empty tomb, to the risen Lord Jesus? This statement I read from Desiring God says it well. The fact that Jesus is raised stands forever at the height of this story, waiting for us to respond, giving us a chance to say something. And one way or another, we're always saying something, whether we're compelled to embrace the gospel or disregard it. Even the refusal to comment is, of course, a kind of comment nonetheless. Well, my hope and prayer this morning is that we would all, each of us, fix our eyes afresh on the risen Lord Jesus and to respond to this great truth this day that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice today 
that Christ is risen, he's risen indeed, that death could not hold the Lord Jesus down, that as he rose into new life, he paved the way for all of us who trust in Jesus to share in this new life forever. Lord God, if we haven't responded to the empty tomb this morning, help us to put our trust in the risen Lord Jesus. And for those of us who have already accepted Jesus, Lord, help us to be reminded, refreshed by, and to rejoice in our new life, our certain hope that's one in our risen Lord Jesus. A life that's without sin, a life that is immortal and imperishable, a life with you forever. We pray all these things in the name of our risen Lord Jesus. Amen.